As I think most of you are aware, I am an American. Uh, I come from the United States. And having lived outside the US for close to a decade now, living in Canada, um, I have come to understand some distinctive things about my country. And one of those is that in the US, individual rights and freedoms are so highly cherished that they're basically considered sacred. We are taught from an early age that freedom is worth fighting for and worth dying for. And so as the American experiment reaches, uh, approaches its 250th anniversary, there remains ongoing debate about how far reaching individual rights and freedoms should be. And of course, similar discussions take place here in Canada as well. Well, interestingly enough, we find this language of freedom and rights in the New Testament as well, uh, especially as the Apostle Paul emphasizes the freedom that believers in Jesus Christ have from having to follow the Jewish law and traditions. But just like any situation where people are given freedoms, there are differing opinions about just how much freedom they ought to have and what exactly they should do with that freedom. And so in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, he addresses the fact that there is division among the congregation over a whole host of issues. And one of them is a controversy about eating food sacrificed to idols. Now, as Paul addresses this specific issue, larger issues, including rights, freedom, and love emerge that speak not only to their specific situation, but even to situations we face today. So since most of us are not personally acquainted with food sacrificed to idols, let me explain the situation that these Corinthian Christians were facing. So in the Roman cities, of course, there were various temples and shrines to the gods, the pagan gods, and they often had dining halls connected to them where some of the food that had been sacrificed to that god was served. Now, if you ate in one of these cafeterias, which people of means did, it was a given that you were eating food that had been sacrificed to idols. Or in the case of the Greek and Romans, they would think of them, of course, as gods. And so it could be argued that the diners were, in a sense, participating in the worship of those gods, even if that was not their specific intention. Meanwhile, if you went to the marketplace to buy meat, which again, only people of wealth would have the ability to do, there was a decent chance that the meat being sold had been sacrificed to one of the pagan gods. But you wouldn't know for sure. There wasn't Zeus brand ground beef or Artemis chicken breast. You didn't know unless you asked. Now, if you were invited to share a meal or go to a banquet that was hosted by a pagan family, 
it was quite possible that the food served there might have been sacrificed. So traditionally, the Jews who had additional dietary restrictions because of their <clears throat> law and tradition, they dealt with this simply by not sharing meals with non-Jews and where possible having their own markets. But with Jews and Gentiles coming together, having table fellowship in the early church, things became more complicated. These Jewish followers of Jesus now had the freedom of no longer being bound by the same dietary laws. But they still probably had questions about eating food that had been sacrificed to idols. Meanwhile, there were Gentile pagans coming to faith in Jesus. And they likely would have friends and family members who still worshipped idols and ate food sacrificed to them. And so unless <clears throat> they were going to cut out their relationships with pretty much everybody else they knew, they had to figure out how were they going to navigate this situation. The good news is many of them, both Jew and Gentile, no longer found it to be an issue. They came to understand that the Greek and Roman gods were nothing but idols. They had no real existence. And so it made no difference whether the food they ate had been sacrificed to idols or not. In Christ, they had this freedom. They now saw that all the food provided was provided from the one true God who they knew and loved and worshipped. And they thanked him for it. Eating food after it had been sacrificed to an idol was not idolatry to them. It didn't interfere with their faith. It didn't interfere with their following Jesus. So case closed, right? Not exactly. The Apostle Paul agreed with them that their arguments and their theology was sound when it came to the food itself. But winning the argument with their knowledge was not the point. Paul wrote, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Now remember, Paul was speaking into a culture that prized knowledge, that elevated great thinkers and philosophers, where philosophical ideas were passionately discussed and debated. And we know that Paul himself was no slouch when it came to making an argument. But Paul was coming to this from a different direct direction. He reminded them that there were some in their fellowship because of their former association with the Greek and Roman gods, when they ate food that had been sacrificed to those gods, it was as if they were slipping back into idol worship. And their conscience being weak was defiled by eating this food sacrificed to idols. Yes, Christians have the freedom to eat food sacrificed to idols, but if it troubled their consciences and led them into temptation and sin, then clearly they had not yet been able to fully accept that freedom. And so while Paul agreed that those who were not bothered by eating food offered to idols had stronger faith and they had the right knowledge, he challenged them regarding their love for the other believers. He wrote, take care that this right of yours 
does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. He asked them to imagine a scenario where they would be eating in an idol's temple and one of their fellow believers saw them, perhaps someone who had once worshipped that idol and had been a worshiper there. Paul wrote, might they not, since their conscience is weak, be encouraged to the point of eating food sacrificed to idols? So by your knowledge, this weak believer for whom Christ died is destroyed. But when you thus sin against members of your family and wound their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Now to be clear, it isn't eating food sacrificed to idols that Paul has a problem with. It is that they would do so despite how it would affect their fellow believers. These are strong words coming from Paul, who, as we know, is passionate about people finding freedom in Christ. But in the kingdom of God, there is a value that is even greater than freedom. And that value is called agape, which is love for the sake of others. Paul desired to see these believers who had such a strong faith and a knowledge of their freedom in Christ to be willing to sacrifice some of that freedom for the sake of their brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul writes, therefore, if food is a cause of their falling, I will never eat meat so that I may not cause one of them to fall. Paul would prefer to go without meat, which honestly most people had to do anyway for financial reasons, than cause someone to stumble. Now for those who were wondering, well, is Paul willing to put his money where his mouth is? He answers that question in the next chapter. In the ninth chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul begins talking about his freedoms and his rights as an apostle of Christ, specifically the right to receive compensation from those he ministers to. He makes strong biblical arguments about the rights of the apostles not to have to work another job in order to support themselves. And then referring to himself and Barnabas, he writes, nevertheless, we have not made use of that right, but we endure everything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. So despite the fact that Paul is well aware of his freedoms and rights in Christ, it is so important to him to be able to preach the gospel free of charge that he lays them down for the sake of Christ. He writes, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. If freedom in Christ is a great gift, one great use of that gift is to lay it down for the sake of others. Paul is making himself an example to the Corinthian Christians. He's saying, look at me, look what I'm owed. Look at what my rights are. And I gladly give them up for you. 
and for the gospel. The implication being, of course, could you not then take your freedom in Christ and make a small concession for the sake of your brothers and sisters in Christ whose consciences are weak? Now, to be clear, Paul is not asking the Corinthian Christians to submit to every judgment and criticism they receive from fellow believers. He argues against circumcision for those who are not already circumcised, despite that's what many people thought that they should do. And in his letter to the Colossians, he writes, do not let anyone condemn you in matters of food and drink or of observing festivals, new moons, or Sabbaths. This wasn't about bowing to peer pressure to kowtowing to others. It was choosing deliberately to forgo certain rights and privileges for the love of others. In the end, Paul does not insist that they avoid all food sacrificed to idols. Only food that has explicitly been labeled as such, which would include the food at the pagan temples. Other than that, he writes in chapter 10, that they should just not bring it up when they're buying meat. And if they're told outright that it's been sacrificed, to abstain from it for the sake of others. So that, friends, brings us to the here and now. Thank God for our freedoms, for our civilian freedoms, our political freedoms, but most of all, the freedom we have in Christ. We have been called to be in the world, but not of it. And we have lots of freedoms as we figure out what that looks like for us. Out of love, out of concern for our children, we curtail certain behaviors because we want to show them what a good life looks like. But what about our love and concern for each other? What freedoms are we willing to lay down for one another? Now, some things are obvious. Some things are just common sense. If you have a friend who struggles with alcohol addiction, you don't call up that friend and say, hey, let's go out for a drink. You schedule a coffee with that friend instead, right? If we know someone who struggles with gambling, we don't buy her lottery tickets for her birthday. We don't give her tickets or plane tickets to go to a casino in Vegas, right? That's just basic human decency. But are we willing to take it a step further? Are we willing to make, say, our home an alcohol-free home because of a family member who has a drinking problem? Not because we have to, but because we want to out of love. Are there things in our lives that we're holding on to a bit too tightly? Things we believe we have the right to, and no one is going to take that from us, even if in our heart of hearts, we know it may not be the best thing for us or for those around us. Something that could cause us to stumble. Something that could cause others around us to stumble. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 10. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. 
All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Imagine, imagine if we all had the freedom in Christ to lay down our individual rights and preferences, to lay down those things that are lawful, but not helpful, that are lawful, but do not build others up. Well, friends, if you're a baptized believer in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit lives in you, and you do have that freedom. And if you feel like you don't have that freedom, you can ask your Heavenly Father for that freedom, for the freedom to de-center ourselves and re-center on Christ, to consider our rights and freedoms as things we can pick up and things we can lay down out of love for God and for others. This is true freedom, the freedom we find in the kingdom of God. Let us pray.